Alahi, alahi, lama shavaktani. From the cross, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are the last words of Jesus recorded in the book of Matthew before he gave up his spirit and died. Jesus on the cross, he looks to heaven and he screams, why? Did Jesus not know that he was going to the cross? Is there some sort of rift in the Trinity? He says, my God. Now, are we speaking of Father God, Holy Spirit God? Isn't Jesus himself God? And if Jesus is God, then is there some sense in which he is forsaking himself? And what does it mean to forsake? What dreadful thing did God do to Jesus on the cross that makes Jesus question why? That makes Jesus say that his father is forsaking him. What's going on here? Is this divine child abuse as some have claimed? And where do we fit in? You know, we wonder, you know, are we eavesdropping on a private conversation between the father and the son? A conversation that perhaps was never meant for our ears. Then there's this issue that Jesus here is quoting someone else. Now, I would feel pretty honored if Jesus quoted me. But so far, he hasn't. <laughs> so Jesus here is, is quoting someone else. These are the words of King David from Psalm 22. So what's that about? Why is Jesus quoting Psalm 22? So open your Bibles, and if you got them, and turn to Matthew 27 and Psalm 22. You can kind of have your finger in Psalm 22. We'll get there a little later. Now, before we read the text, I want to give you a little timeline of the day. Crucifixion day. So, timeline of crucifixion day. We have six hours on the cross, and we are in this series about the seven sayings of Jesus, as Pastor Tim called it. Jesus said what on the cross? And uh, so this is 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. We have these six hours. And 9 a.m. In, in the Bible is referred to as the third hour because the Jews were smart. They're like, you get up at 6 a.m., then it's the first hour, right? And then seven's the second hour. Nine is the third. Well, I didn't count that right, did I? But somehow, 9 a.m. is the third hour. <laughs> and Jesus is crucified. Then he gives the first three statements. It's interesting if you look at the first statement and the seventh statement, they both begin with the same word. Father. Father, forgive them. Then the second we have, today you shall be with me in paradise. As Kellen taught us, he offers pardon and eternal life to the guy next to him on the cross. Then Jesus shows that even on the cross, he cares about his responsibilities as a firstborn son. And he says to Mary, woman, behold your son. 
Then at 12 p.m. noon, so then we see 12 p.m. noon, the sixth hour, we have three hours of darkness over the whole land. And there's a lot of debate about this whole land thing. Is it just Jerusalem, Judea? Is it all of Israel? Or is it the entire earth? Because that word land can be translated as earth. But there's three hours of darkness. And it's very interesting that nothing is recorded in Scripture about those three hours other than that there was darkness. Now, we know Jesus was on the cross before and after, so we assume he was on the cross during those three hours. Then at 3 p.m., the ninth hour, Jesus speaks and dies. He speaks four times in a short period of time. Number, the fourth statement, why have you forsaken me? That's the one we're looking at today. Fifth, I thirst, it is finished. And then, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. So, Matthew 27, let's look at verse 45 through 46. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. So this is 12 to 3 p.m. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Allahi, Allahi, lama shavaktani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Heavenly Father, I pray that you would Teach us through this text, God. I pray that you would open our eyes to the riches of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we would be more grateful for our salvation after today, that we would also be more aware of the glory and the grandeur of Jesus. Amen. So Jesus asks God a question. God, why have you forsaken me? So the question is, why? When we give our kids a command, we tell them that why is the wrong answer. The right answer is, yes, daddy. Or, yes, mommy. Now, after you've obeyed, if you want to come back and ask, daddy, why did you want me to clean my room? Cool. Here, Jesus has fully obeyed the Father, and now he asks, why have you forsaken me? It's a why question. It implies confusion. It implies a lack of understanding. I don't get it, God. Why are you doing this? You ever ask God why? And how did that go for you? Did he answer? Did God lay out his sovereign plans before you? Did he ask you your opinion? Did he ask you to weigh in with your two cents? Or maybe, did he give you clarity? Did he give you a scripture that you could hold on to? Maybe something that gave you insight or peace? Or maybe he rebuked you. Like Paul rebuked the Roman church when he theorizes that they are asking the why question. Romans 9 verse 20. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder? 
Why have you made me like this? But here in Matthew 27, this is not just a mere human asking the question. This is God's beloved son. Surely there will be an explanation. But Jesus looks to the heavens and there's silence. No answer. If the father refused to answer the why question for Jesus, how presumptuous we are to assume that he will answer the why question for us when we question his sovereign will. But then again, maybe the father did answer Jesus, not in words, but with action. The curtain in the temple was torn in two. The earth quaked, the dead were raised, and they started walking around Jerusalem. Maybe that was God's way of saying, oh, my son, this is what we've been aiming for the entire time. When we created the world, it was this day that we had in mind. This was the goal all along. Next, we have the address. My God, my God. And notice Jesus doesn't just say God. But he says, my God. Implying he still trusts God and claims God. But also notice that Jesus doesn't say Father. He doesn't say our Father who art in heaven as he taught the disciples to pray in Matthew chapter 6. Now before, in the first statement, he says, Father, forgive them. In the last statement, right before he dies, he says, Father, into my hands I commit my spirit. But here, he does not say Father. He cries out in excruciating pain. Hendrickson calls this the cry of agony. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's okay to say, oh my God. If you're talking to God. Oh my God, I love you. Oh my God, how great you are. Oh my God, help. Oh my God, why? This is an expression of pain and suffering. Do Christians suffer? Absolutely. Christians sometimes go through incredible suffering, persecution, martyrdom, health problems, loss of loved ones, rejection by friends and family. If Jesus suffered, wouldn't we expect that his followers might suffer as well? Remember, it was Jesus who said, take up your cross and follow me not take up your piña colada and go to the beach. <laughs> Even if it's happy hour in Mexico. Now, sometimes we cry out, oh God, why? Not because we don't know why, but it's a way of expressing our pain. That's what Jesus is doing here. I remember at the birth of our children... Carolyn asked the why question. She turned to me and she said, 
Why did you do this to me? It, I wasn't quite sure how to respond. Well, honey, we wanted children and she didn't need an answer to the question. She knew the answer. She was just expressing her pain. She also said in the middle of labor, I don't want to do this. And me being a pretty literal guy, I remember thinking, it's a little late to back out now. Now, Carolyn wasn't really saying that this pregnancy was completely my fault. She didn't really need an answer to the why question. She wasn't about to back out on birthing our child. She was merely expressing her pain. And I wonder if that's what Jesus was doing as well. It occurred to me that Carolyn's two statements at her greatest point of suffering mirrored two statements that Jesus makes at his greatest points of suffering as well. So Carolyn said, first statement, click. So Carolyn said, I don't want to do this. Similarly, in the garden, Jesus says, Father, take this cup from me. Carolyn said, why did you do this to me? Similarly, Jesus said, basically, why did you do this to me? God, why have you forsaken me? Now, was Jesus really saying, why the cross? Why are we doing this? I don't want to do this. Saving the world is too hard. I think I'm going to back out. Jesus was facing the torture of the cross and his heart burst forth with these words, this expression of suffering. Think about what he went through. The 39 lashes, the crown of thorns, the mocking, the pulling of his beard, the carrying of the cross, the nails driven into his hands and feet. The metal of those nails rubbing up against bone. The difficulty breathing. And that's just what we saw. What torments did Jesus endure during those three hours of darkness? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that Jesus was being made sin for us. Not just that he took our sin but that he became our sin. Galatians 3.13 says, Jesus became a curse. Again, not just that he was cursed, but he became a curse. Isaiah 53, written about 800 years before the cross, says that Jesus was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. God was crushing him and laying upon him the iniquity of us all. The wrath of God was being poured out on Jesus for our sin. What sort of soul-crucifying torture was Jesus enduring? 
Also keep in mind that here Jesus is quoting words that were written 600 years earlier by the psalmist King David. So next we have the quotation, Psalm 22, verse 1. So if you're not there already, go ahead and open up to Psalm 22. I'm going to go through it very quickly right now, but you may want to spend some more time there. There's a lot there. The chapter begins very familiar to us. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning. Frost describes Psalm 22 as the fifth gospel account of the crucifixion. Psalm 22 is one of the most specific prophecies about the crucifixion, along with Isaiah 53. And I find it quite ironic that while Jesus is making a statement that seems to question God's plan, he is sending us to a chapter in the Bible that makes it very clear that this was God's plan all along. So Psalm 22 gives us some very specific predictions about the cross. Verse 6, he was despised. Verse 7 describes the mockery. Verse 8 actually quotes the people who were standing around Jesus while he's on the cross when they said, he trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. Verse 11 alludes to this forsakenness that Jesus would experience. It says there would be none to help. Verse 14 and 15 goes into his suffering. Verse 16 gets very specific. You see the crucifixion right there. It says that his hands and his feet were pierced. And again, this was prophesied 600 years before the cross. Verse 18 says that they would divide his garments and cast lots for them. Verse 16 through 29 speaks of the accomplishment of the cross. What was it for? What was God trying to accomplish? Namely, worldwide fame for God and eternal life for his people. And verse 31, love it. It ends with, he has done it. Which makes us think of the sixth statement of Jesus from the cross. It is finished. So when Jesus asked this question, he was referring us to this prophecy in Psalm 22. Jesus wanted you to go back to Psalm 22 and read it in light of the cross. Also, he was expressing his suffering. And notice when he asked why, he didn't say, why the lashing? Why the thorns? Why the nails? He didn't even say, why the cross? He said, why forsaken? God, why did you abandon me? So the point of the question focuses on this idea of forsakenness. And I think of Jesus at this point kind of wrestling through this idea. And he's thinking, my whole life, I have never been without your favor. My whole existence, in all of eternity past, I have only enjoyed perfect, unhindered 
fellowship with you. This is something I have never experienced before. Maybe I knew it was coming. I didn't realize what it would feel like. I didn't realize that this would be the torture of all tortures. I can handle the thrashing and the nails. But this, this is too painful. Why, God? Jesus here is speaking in Aramaic. And this word, shavaktani, means left behind, forsaken, deserted, abandoned. My God, why have you left me? Why have you deserted me? And here it seems that somehow God the Father had left human Jesus behind. In the song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, Stuart Townsend is wrestling with Matthew 27, verse 46. And he says poetically, How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turned his face away. He's trying to get to this idea of forsakenness, but notice that Townsend walks very gently here. He softens the words. He doesn't say abandoned. He doesn't say deserted. He gives us a euphemism. He turns his face away. Now you must know that the Trinity is still intact here. But somehow there is a separation between Father God and Jesus in his humanity. And abandoning the Jesus has never experienced before. And it seems that this separation causes the greatest agony and the greatest torture that Jesus had to endure on the cross. I think the 39 lashes and being nailed to the cross was a small pain compared to Shavakhtani. This truly was the wrath of God falling on Jesus. This was the crushing blow against our sin. Isaiah 53, verse 10, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt, for our guilt. And notice it doesn't say his body, but his soul makes an offering for guilt. And yes, his body was broken for us. His blood was shed for us. But this is an agony of the soul as well. Now perhaps, I was just theorizing here, that Jesus could have experienced shavaktani on a walk or even in bed. And it would have been just as painful. For this truly was the great suffering of Christ. Perhaps the cat of nine tails and the cross were needed mostly for us. We needed a physical picture of torture that would help us to understand the soul-wrenching agony that Jesus endured during those three hours of darkness. We needed a picture that would help us to understand Shavakhtani. Because Shavakhtani was the price that was paid for your soul. 
The soul of Jesus endured an agonizing torture that you and I could never comprehend. Thank God we can never, and we will never be able to comprehend that if we are in Christ. Steve Lawson says, this was an agony that can only be understood by someone suffering in hell. All the sins of God's elect placed upon Jesus. All the wrath of God for their sin condensed into a three-hour time period. Unimaginable torture. It's no wonder that God turned the lights out. You don't want to see this. It will scar you. A torture so severe that it led Jesus from the cross to cry out, Why? It's encouraging to me that after the darkness subsided, after the why question was asked, it seems that there was a reuniting of father and son on the cross. After the price had been paid, after it was finished, the father embraced his son once again. And we see that in the seventh statement, in the final statement of Jesus on the cross. And this time, Jesus doesn't cry out, my God, my God. But he says, Father. He calls God Father once again. Luke 23, verse 46. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Lines of communication have opened up. And Jesus surrenders his life. He gives up his spirit to the one that he loves the most. To the one that loves him the most. But the question remains. Why? What is the point of this forsakenness? Why did the father forsake him in the first place? Why did God abandon Jesus? Isaiah 53 verse 5 gives a partial answer to the why question. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Our triune God, Jesus included, wanted these outcomes. He desired for our sins to be forgiven. He desired for us to experience peace and for our souls to be healed. But perhaps Jesus' question was related to the severity of the pain. Why did it have to be so painful? Now, when we think of pain, we think of health problems and torture devices. We think of kidney stones, migraines, and giving birth. Back pain, Recovering from surgery. I hear that recovery from knee surgery is one of the worst. The boils of Job. Walking on hot coals. Joint pain. Shingles. Fire. We think of animal attacks. The Iron Maiden. Crosses. And, the, and whipping. It's hard for me to imagine anything more painful than the 39 lashes that Jesus received. 
The cat of nine tails had nine leather straps, into which were tied nails and glass. And they stuck into Jesus' back, and chunks of flesh would rip out as the lash was retracted. When we go through times of suffering, we often question God. Why does this have to be so painful? And I don't know if I have a real good answer for your pain. When we suffer, though, we are getting a sample of the pain that Jesus went through. When we are mistreated, when we are ridiculed, when we experience health problems or the loss of a loved one, or that loss of a loved one that we have spent a lifetime with. Incredible loneliness. In those times, we are getting a small taste of the cross. In Jesus' case, the cross was a solution. And the solution has to be big enough to deal with the problem. The medicine has to be strong enough to cure the disease. Our sinfulness accumulated merited judgment. Say that with me. Merited judgment. Judgment that we deserve. Over time, sin by sin, we earned the just punishment of God. The ledger is long and the punishment must fit the crime. Imagine God's heart like an empty Pacific Ocean. And as humanity heaped sin upon sin upon sin, that empty cavern was filled to the brim with the wrath of God. This wrath heaped up like Mount Everest, and on the cross, that colossal mountain of wrath came crashing down upon Jesus. I said to my daughters once, God killed Jesus. So, does that mean that God loves us more than Jesus? To which they replied, yep. My four little theologians. And you know, their thinking makes sense, doesn't it? If you trade one thing for another, it's because you value the thing that you are getting more than the thing that you are giving up. Simple logic. My girls know that. If I go to In-N-Out and I fork over $35 for burgers for my family, that is because I value the burgers and fries, shakes on rare occasions, more than I value the $35. So if I'm God and I kill Jesus to save you, that means I love you more than I love Jesus, right? This is where you shout out, wrong! <laughs> I love my daughters, but sometimes simple logic is wrong. It feels wrong to even suggest a thing. It got real quiet in here for a second. They're like, is John going off the rails? We know that the father has a deep love for the son. And the son has a deep love for the father. But we don't talk about that as much. We like to focus on God's love for us, which is legit. 
how deep the Father's love for us. We say, for God so loved the world. I want to personalize it. For God so loved me. And that's right. But it's also true to say it this way, even though it's not in the Bible. For God so loved the Son that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God sent Jesus to the cross because he loved Jesus. You need to know that. And I hope you take that home with you today. God sent Jesus to the cross because he loved Jesus. Ever since Victor Barranco coined the term win-win, we have been looking for win-win solutions. However, when we look to the cross, we see win-lose. I win, Jesus loses. He gets condemnation, I get none. He gets the cross, I get connection to God. He gets abandoned, I get brought near. He gets pain, I get pardon and peace. He gets torture, I get treasure. He gets whipping and wounds, and I get welcomed into the kingdom. He gets gory, I get glory. He gets nails and nakedness and public humiliation. And what do we get? We get adoption, forgiveness, heaven, freedom, joy, happiness, life, sonship, inheritance, redemption, justification, friendship, and eternal life. Jesus gets wrath and we get redemption. Now, I definitely come out ahead on this deal. If I consider where I would be without the cross of Jesus Christ and where I am now because of his sacrifice, I am worlds ahead of where I would be. But did I come out ahead of Jesus? Was the ultimate result of the cross net gain for me and net loss for him? No. Now, we understand the idea that Jesus is a gift to us, and thank God for that. But we often miss the fact that we are a gift to Jesus. John 6, verse 37, Jesus describes this gift given from the Father to the Son. He says, all that the Father gives me, there's the gift, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. So why do we come to Jesus? Because the Father has given us as a gift to Jesus. But this gift does take a considerable amount of work to open up. It's kind of like that gift you gave to your wife and you used lots of duct tape and boxes and there's a lot of work getting into that gift. This gift, Jesus' gift, takes more work. We are not a free gift to Jesus even though eternal life is a free gift to us. Jesus had to do much work in order to enjoy this gift. Two verses later, we have John 6, 39. Jesus says, This is the will of him who sent me, the will of the Father, 
that of all that he's, he, he has given me, there's the gift again, of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Jesus will not lose any of his elect. Now, how is Jesus going to acquire this gift that he will, quote, raise up on the last day? In order to possess this gift, Jesus must go to the cross. He must pay the price to redeem the gift so that it can be his. We, you and I, we are the bride of Christ. We are given to Jesus as a bride for him to enjoy. And unlike my bride, Carolyn, who came to me clean and beautiful on our wedding day, Jesus had to clean up his dirty bride. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. How are we supposed to love our wives? By following the example of the ultimate husband. Love your wives as Christ loved his bride, the church, and gave himself up for her on the cross that he might sanctify her, that he might make her holy, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Why did he do this? So that he might open the gift. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be beautiful, that she might be holy and without blemish. The gift the Father gives the Son is a bride, a people, a church, a group of millions, perhaps billions of people who look to Jesus as their hero and their greatest joy. Who worship Jesus, who live for Jesus. Now, I would say there's a good definition of a Christian. One who looks to Jesus as his hero as his greatest joy, one who worships Jesus and lives for him. The gift the Father gives the Son is an opportunity for greatness, an opportunity for worldwide fame. Good parents don't just give their kids a life of comfort and ease. No, they give them an opportunity to do great things, to build, to conquer, to achieve. And Jesus wasn't given hot tubs and margaritas. He was given a cross. He was given the opportunity to achieve greatness, to acquire lasting glory and a bride for himself. Why? So that Philippians 2, 9 through 11 might be fulfilled. Jesus goes to the cross and what happens next? What happens to Jesus after that? Exaltation. Verse 9. Therefore, and if you look at the context, because of the cross, 
Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess in thousands of languages that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now at the cross, I get forgiveness, but I don't get that. Every knee is not going to bow before me. Every tongue is not going to be singing my praises. Jesus gets eternal glory and worship. The Father gets glory too. When you honor the Son, you honor the Dad, right? Dads, you ever hear someone speak well of your son? This is button-busting glory that the Father gets. He's proud of his Son. And we get the happiness of being able to enjoy his glory. Hebrons, that's why you went to the Grand Canyon last week. To see glory. And I tell you folks, greater glory exists in the person of Jesus Christ. We get to enjoy glory. Hebrews 12, 2 makes it clear that the cross was not a surprise to Jesus. Jesus knew what he was doing when he went to the cross. He understood the purpose of the cross. And he delighted in what he would accomplish. It says, For the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, what was this joy? This joy that drove Jesus forward to the cross. I think he was after a win, win, win. A triple win. One, to save us. That's a win for us. Two, to please the Father. That's a win for the Father. It's also a win for Jesus because he loves to please the Father. And three, to gain a bride, an eternal glory for himself. That is a win for Jesus. Imagine Jesus like a groom looking forward to his wedding day like a knight rescuing his princess. Forever Jesus will be the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. Forever he will be our greatest hero, our great benefactor, our Savior who is worthy of all our adoration. Why did God forsake Jesus? Why did he abandon him, crush him, crucify him? Hosea chapter 6 verse 1 is an interesting verse. And here Israel wrestles with the pain that God has caused them. And they consider God's good aims in hurting them. They say, come let us return to the Lord for he has torn us. Now usually if someone's tore you up, you don't return to them. You don't go back. But they say, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. 
He has struck us down and he will bind us up. Sometimes you have to tear down the old house before you can build the new one. God hurt them so that he might heal them. So that the ultimate state might be better than their original state. Similarly, the father crushed the son, not because he loved us more. Not because he wanted to leave Jesus a broken body and a pile of bones. No, he executed the son so that he might exalt the son. That he might give Jesus the name above every name. That's what the father wanted. Why did God forsake Jesus? In short, it was for our good and his glory. Toward this end, that Jesus might have the opportunity to make his bride beautiful and to enjoy her beauty. That he might turn that which is revolting into a radiant, ravishing bride. That he might turn something that is ugly and worthless into something to be treasured. Also, so that Jesus might obey the Father to the nth degree. So that Jesus might delight in bringing pleasure to his Father. And that Jesus might achieve great glory for himself. So that the Father might put the Son's glory on display for the amazement of the universe. This was the Father's aim the entire time. This is why he created the world. This is why he put Adam and Eve in the world, knowing they would sin. Knowing he'd have to send a savior to rescue them. This was his plan all along. From the foundation of the world, the father intended great joy and great glory for his beloved son. Why don't you stand and let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you because the Father wants us to praise you. Lord Jesus, we praise you because the Holy Spirit wants us to praise you. And we praise you because we want to praise you. There is unity in this matter. We praise you for your heroic act on the cross. For your great love for your Father. And your great love for us. We thank you that you were willing to endure Shavakhtani so that we would never have to. We praise you for this win, win, win. Lord Jesus, forever you will be our hero, our savior, the one who rescued us and gave us life. 